Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, this is confirmed, which we all know. Um, Are we going to say confirmed video? in air quotes here? Because I don't think actual event invites have gone out. Haven't they? Did they? I don't think I saw the, the picture. What What's the, there's always the criminology of what that looks like. Is it available somewhere? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I saw some joke ones that said, Are you sure you need both kidneys? Is one of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to episode 159 of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm Dimitra and I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And of course we have Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. Alrighty. Alright, so we have an Ask MTJC uh, follow-up there, Jaime? We do. This is from a friend of the show, Jesse Catterwall, says, uh, Do you all max out your Touch ID fingers too? Three and five, not good enough for me. Hoping Face ID allows several faces to unlock the thingy. And there's a little <laughs> bit of uh, follow-up there in the chain that we'll have uh, in, in the show notes for those of you driving at home. Uh, so iOS apparently only supports five uh, fingers that you can register for touch id and mac os only supports three which is kind of uh kind of interesting mm-hmm. so for me personally i i looked after i saw this uh, on the channel and i only have four fingers registered apparently so i've, I've not even mm-hmm. maxed out the five that's possible right i also have four and having i wonder if we have the same four it's for me it's my two thumbs and my two index fingers that's yeah, exactly what i do too <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the, have, you got your, have you got yours labeled as well by the way like you can change the label to the finger i don't have them labeled no no i didn't even know that was possible it just says like finger one figure two so on yeah if you if it's cool if you if you go into that uh, that control there um, when you touch the touch when you tap the touch touch what do you call it home button um, it actually lights up or highlights the uh, the finger that you're tapping so you can you can say it's your left or right index so on and so forth right so I actually have five fingers stored because I have also uh, Carol has her uh, an index finger stored on my phone and I have an index finger stored on her phone so that mm-hmm. as I said as I said in my follow up thread to, uh, to Jesse and Katie that uh, we don't don't have to worry about you know having my fingers 
just posthumously cut off my uh, hand there to try and open my phone. So, <laughs> well, Tim, you're you're assuming that the people who would try to do such a thing are aware of the fact that Touch ID does not work with your phone being, you know, well, in contact finger, with your true. severed finger. That's true. They don't work with dead fingers, as as we've all talked about before. But yeah, that's true. I mean, um, that that so that also presumes that that the people who might be trying this um this horrible sort of task of removing one of the podcast hosts fingers is somebody who listens to the podcast and has heard us say repeatedly that's that true. it doesn't work with, with that sort of thing so well that said i mean if, if anybody who works in the banking industry is listening right now turn, plug your ears up so you don't hear this but it's in the it's in our uh, terms and conditions that you're the only person who uses touch id on this phone to access uh, certain apps you know so, mm-hmm. which is kind mm-hmm. of uh so we have to sort of say yes i i'm the only person with fingers stored on this phone but as I said in, in my tweet there, I've, I'm doing air quotes, heard that some people store their partner's fingers as well. So. But now you just announce it to the whole world. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I have editorial license. I can cut that out of a way. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, it's like, you know, like, like as if your partner doesn't know your passwords for things anyway, right? Like maybe they don't, but, you know, but in, I think in a lot of cases they do, right? Or should. All right. Mm-hmm. That's the uh, Ask MTJC put to bed. We're going to skip the 12th announcement thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not confirmed? Okay. All right. All right. So uh, one of the things I put up here was an interesting post by Mark Kerman on Bloomberg uh, on the Bloomberg website. It's called uh, "How Apple Want Plans to Change the Way You Use Your Next iPhone," and it's a good it's a good twenty minute long uh, video where Mark goes through. He's got a, a, a I think a supplier of fixes up phones supplied him all the phones, so he actually goes through each one of the phones right from the Silverback um, original iPhone all the way up to like the seven, and sort of talks about the the things that were added to each phone. So if you want to recap on when things happened, you know, like when when we got the larger screen, when Touch ID came in play into play, when we started having the flash on the back of the camera, um, all that kind of stuff. That's kind of an interesting review. But then he also goes through what um, they posted on their, I guess, their roundup page. Uh, this same page here that we'll have in the show notes. Um, they've mapped out what they think the the phone is going to look like and what the different parts of it are going to be. And what's interesting is the new things they're talking about, like the infrared sensor for uh, recognizing your face. We talked about you know how do you recognize your face in the dark well obviously ir doesn't isn't affected by you know lights being on or off so it should be able to recognize your face using 3d facial recognition to unlock your phone and to make payments and that kind of stuff a new smart camera on the front and back he thinks that the the, the reconfigured cameras are going to be better for augmented reality i think that they're that way so that because most people tend to take photographs with their phone held sideways um another new piece that they talked about oh and and basically his his uh, post was uh, and i tweeted about it today was that uh, he says that it's going to be a virtual home button as we've sort of we've sort of guessed at ourselves right that there is going to be no because Samsung S8 apparently and Pixel um, don't have uh, an actual home button anymore is that true does anybody know that for a fact right I don't know off the top of my head but that sounds about right because Android has preferred to use an on-screen home button back button and what's the other one multitasking right. button I think right yeah those used to be hardware hardware buttons back in the day right <laughs> and the other the other the last piece here that's of significance on this graph is the fast the, the supposedly faster A11 processor. I don't think we have an A11 yet, do we? No. And in, in the video he talked about the fact he didn't know why the 10 nanometer design was better, but I think we've talked about that before. That's the question I wanted to ha- ask Mark. That means that the that the distances are shorter, for, so things are faster in the processor? Yeah, so- I mean, in, in general, and this is this is kind of a, a loose rule of thumb, uh, because architectures are, are changing, but in, in general, when you have, what the, what the 10 nanometer means is the uh well it's the it's it's it used to be the length of the gate of the transistor now it's more the the 
pitch of the of the metal. But but uh, but in general, when you have a smaller distance there, it's the electrons have less distance to go, so so you can go faster. Uh, in a, in a uh, you know you can have, you can have a, a clock cycle that's faster and still have the transistor perform correctly. So in general, uh, a, a smaller uh, gate length means a faster transistor and and more current uh, and uh, just all around good good for the for everything except for heat, which, which is. <laughs> the opposite uh, effect but uh, but yeah in general smaller is faster oh, anything to add there Hami? am i correct in thinking that a smaller um uh, manufacturer i forget the the machining process that they they use to get to the 10 nanometers am i correct in thinking that it also has impacts on battery usage it does it, it's impacted negatively on battery usage actually because uh, like I said, uh, smaller means more current drawn. So the more current you use, the more your battery goes down. So in, in general, small designs are, are uh, negatively impact battery life, which is why there's mm. always this war of trying to improve the battery, get a better battery uh, to support the new chips. Right. Hmm. Okay. So it, it'll be interesting if this, this virtual home button, uh, for a couple of reasons, uh, one of them, it, it seems to fly in the face of, of one of the golden rules that, that Apple and, and really Steve Jobs used to apply in, in that simplicity is better there was always the simplicity of that single button you never had to memorize some gesture or something so when you're inside an app you have to remember what the gesture is to exit the app or, or something like that uh and, and on that note it makes me wonder are we going to have to implement some new gesture inside our apps to make it quit that's sort of hard to believe there's probably going to be some uh fixed you know built-in gesture but then will that interfere potentially with some with with our own gestures inside apps that's true that's a good point That'd be interesting to see yeah yeah i think to that point mark am i correct in thinking that apple made a relatively big deal considering how much of a minor change it was that rather than trying to infer what should be done when you're a full screen app and you try to swipe from one of the edges it would give you sort of that little chevron sort of thing rather than just you know letting it occur or or doing the opposite and i remember them saying in one of the sessions probably what's new in like coco touch or something that you can now elect specifically and say oh yes i i want these gestures to be supported in my app or or no please please don't do anything when this happens sort of thing um potentially with this sort of behavior in mind yeah but how could you turn off the quit the app gesture because so i, I doubt you could the app. do that but I, I think it would be um i think their behavior is when you're in full screen and you swipe mm-hmm. from the bottom they're sort of hesitant they say well maybe the user wanted like control panel so mm-hmm. let's show the little like carrot the little thing that they can then swipe on again and or drag and pull up to get the control center. Whereas I think if your app says, oh yeah, um, I, I really don't mind if, if I'm in full screen mode, please go ahead and, and just let that occur seamlessly. I think it was the intention behind what they were saying, but I, I might've misheard or misunderstood or, or maybe I'm misremembering that session. Maybe it's all, maybe it's all the uh, broken home buttons on the iPhone threes and fours that they're emulating here. But I mean, like it's going to be super annoying because I mean, I've, I've gotten into the, into the habit of, of double tapping the home button to, you know, to f- open up existing apps and sw- swipe back and forth between them and and like mark said like how how are you going to if you know how many times have you opened an app that's like not loading properly like messages for one which just comes up with a big white screen and i want to get out of it and tapping the home button is one way to get back to the springboard so i can 
then deal with the with the busted app, right? Um, yeah. There's so I, I just I don't I don't really understand how I, I, all I can see people going into their accessibility settings on their under preferences and turning on the virtual home button so it's always omnipresent, you know, like those people mm-hmm. who have the busted home buttons had to do in the back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. There's also Siri. How are we going to access Siri? Right, right. Well, it's going to be magic again, right? You're just going to look at it. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. <laughs> She's yeah. going to know you want something. <laughs> yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, this these are all rumors at this point, not substantiated. So, so who knows what the reality will be? Maybe you have to use your AirPods to sort of swipe or tap or whatever it is you do on those to get Siri to come up, right? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Every phone will ship with a remote control that you have to use. That's to- true. <laughs> <laughs> An Apple Watch that'll that'll be your home button for your phone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. The entire experience, just a chain of dongles to have this this full exactly. experience that you want. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's just I don't know. It's just the the more the more taps they add, the more cumbersome it becomes. Right. So yeah. Or may or maybe that uh, hole in the back case that we saw right, a few months ago, right, yeah. and thought that that was going to be a Touch ID. Maybe that'll be a home button mm. on the back. <laughs> Perfect. That'll yeah. be interesting. The um, ocarina style blowhole in the back. Yeah. Yeah. I remember yeah, that. Yeah. Maybe you double tap the power button to get it to do things mm. now instead of turning on and off the phone um yeah all right well let's uh we're looking forward to maybe on the september 12th announcement maybe he'll be telling us what's happening with these phones we're not sure yeah the reason yeah. i'm being yeah. facetious about that is because we're I, we're still confirmed but unconfirmed about the september 12th date um so moving on we've got another uh follow-up item and this has to do with uh the machine learning journal that apple brought out their new blog um but this is an interesting uh piece on basically it talks about how how um, Siri works, like how they how they they manage to do the 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 voice using voice and, and, and computer learning to make the uh, to make the voice more realistic. But what's really cool about this, if you skip down to um, there's some sample recordings of Siri saying some pr- phrases based on the way just below add a new, where it says add a new voice uh, almost at the bottom of the document um, shows the way uh, Siri would have said something under iOS nine, iOS ten, and now coming up in iOS eleven. And if you go through and play those samples. You'll see it's quite different in terms of how the voice synthesis works and how it sounds. It sounds much more natural in the iOS 11 examples, for instance, right? But yeah, if you want to dig into, uh, there's even some math in there, like some of those epsilon. Yeah, I was seeing that. There's some pretty cool math. Yeah, I was thinking <laughs> Tammy. Tammy ought to read this article. She'll, she'll love it. Yeah, she can explain it to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but it's it's an interesting article. If you're interested, of course, you know this is, again. We talked about this blog. I haven't I haven't looked at the I missed the last two postings from Apple. This is the fourth one in the blog. Um, um, about uh, issue number four, uh, about what they're doing with uh, machine learning on their journal. Cool stuff. It's great to see that that Apple's taking this uh, new openness uh, if, uh, towards publishing research results, that they're taking this seriously. It's great to see that. Right, yeah. And you were saying the whole machine learning community has always been sort of open about that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, they're they're very open source oriented. So uh, I remember when they when they first made that new policy, one of the reasons was that they weren't able to get good people uh, to work at Apple because nobody wanted to go there and not be able to publish their results. Right, right, cool. Hmm. All right, um, another uh, follow up that goes way back to like probably our first year of this podcast. Um, this is a post from Savvy Apps, which I think is a company that makes or like a contracting company that makes apps, but they've published a post on app development costs. The ultimate guide to app budget by app type and uh they've even posted a tldr at the top of this top of the article talking about the cost of doing various apps and and um i think your basic app is going to be around fifty thousand dollars according to this uh, their their numbers um you know and then the more complicated apps you know apps that require login 
100,000 to 300,000. Um, you know, social, I think the most expensive app they have here on demand app costs up to 1.5 million they're, they're predicting. So anywhere between 100,000 and 101.5 million. These are prices, like, or there's one here, sorry, there's one with uh, I, uh, Internet of Things at uh, 2.5 million. But interesting to see that, um, I think we were talking about this before the show, that these prices are, are pretty high. But they're not unreasonable, I think, uh, for uh, you know, to get a quality app done. It's it's good to see these numbers because it, it, it makes me think that. So so uh, I have the feeling, and and uh, maybe you guys do do as well that that the days of the the opinion that you can get an app done by just shipping it off to some overseas site that's charging ten bucks an hour, right? Uh, and and having a quality app done, I I, I feel like those days are, are past are past, and and people are much more realistic about these things. Companies who need apps are willing to make the investment in the apps more. Yeah, I think. Do, I you, think, guys, do you guys have that feeling? Yeah, and I think that my, mm-hmm. the, the my you know I've been telling businesses for years that you know if you had an if you if you have something that can be some business logic can be turned into an app and make your people better more efficient and that kind of stuff um, for years. But I mean, falling on deaf ears because I guess it was just too early for that message to be heard. But yeah, I think that now realistically we're seeing more uh, in terms of what people are putting prices they're putting on their apps on the app store. They're tending to be a little higher than they were. You know, we had that race to the bottom, which we've all talked about before, but. I think that kind of um, mentality is gone from from apps, and I think people are charging more. And then now, if they're going out to to build an app for somebody, they're being much more realistic about the amount of time and effort it takes to build these things, right? Um, you know, so um, it's not it's not like it was back in the day when somebody thought they had an idea and they could build an app for for a song, as it were, right? So, or I'll buy you a, beer, a case of beer if you build me an app. You know, I've heard that one before, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 My Visa company doesn't take uh, beer as payment. <laughs> I think looking at the the TLDR at the very least, if folks get nothing else out of this article, are kind of interesting to see the spread of expected costs for different kinds of apps. So let's yeah. say like a like a data consumption app, which they give as an example, is um, like calendar, weather, stocks, that sort of thing. Something that just pulls in some data. Uh, Fifty to a hundred thousand dollars. Okay, fifty thousand dollars spread. You go all the way to the opposite side of the scale, and you see the Internet of Things IoT hardware mm. app costs, which are any were from 200,000 to 2.5 million dollars. Now, I wonder if, if that is specifically for the app or are they talking about hardware costs as well for that one? Yeah, I would think. It's uh, a good question. I mean, what they mentioned in here is that the IoT apps often require fairly low-level interactions with form- firmware. So, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of makes sense that right now IoT is definitely a, a hot area for people to be in, so sort of if you're looking to see which way the wind is blowing in terms of like where's the money at, it it does seem like I hear more and more people talking about using um you know core bluetooth which i don't think i'd heard much of over the past few years some of course but it just seems like more and more people are getting into oh yeah this connects with fitbit this connects with nest this connects with you know, apple watch all sorts of other things that i think people are really excited about yeah for sure it's it's one of the, the more hot things around here these days yeah in the conclusion of the article they talk about how they're they're not presenting these as hard and fast rules or or like a, a set menu kind of thing but um that it's sort of give not and not to say that apps could co- could not cost less less than the lower price or higher than the higher price. Um, but um, that just sort of give you uh, a, pl- a place to talk. I mean, you know, five years ago or however, however long it was, seven years ago, I guess, when I was talking to customers about building apps, you know, I would start a, start off to say five, 10, 15,000 and up, you know, and, and, and the emphasis on the and up. Um, just to give them an idea, if they, if they were serious about building an app, that's kind of sort of what it's going to cost them. You know, it's not like, you know, we were coming from, in terms of 
of how we were, where I was coming from, you know, building websites and going into building apps. I mean, you could build websites for like $500. You can build websites for $80,000, you know, so it depended on the amount of effort and interaction and that kind of stuff that you had going on in it. Right. So, um, and I know customers who've spent this kind of money to build apps. Right. So, and, and then some, you know, what's your experience with the, the cost of building apps? Well, it's very similar. I'm, you know, I, I, like I said, I don't, I don't think these numbers are unreasonable at all. Uh, and I'm glad to see that, that other people are talking about it. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Indeed. I think if you look at sort of like the, the rule of thumb sort of thing, so their bit about the um, dual-sided marketplace apps where they mention like TaskRabbit, for example, um, or like an Uber type thing. And the kind of money that they mention here is the sort of money that you might expect a startup to get for like a seed funding or perhaps a, a Series A kind of funding. So that kind of sort of as a, as a gut check says, yeah, that, that seems about right in terms of the where did they draw the line on these expected prices. Mm-hmm. And then Rene Ritchie posted that, because uh, we were joking last week about 8K, 4K, 8K, whatever. He says HDR video is the next big thing coming out. So as far as uh, I, don't even, goes. I don't even know what that is. Mm-hmm. Have you guys seen that? Heard of it? What is- he, he talks a bit about it in the in the, in the, the tweet here. Um, yeah, he just he says like HDR photos, but video, whatever that means. Yeah, yeah. Video's yeah. already moving, uh, so how can it be moving? I've heard of it in, so high dynamic range, I think, is what that stands for. And I've heard about it only because of a game which it seems to be really hot in, in PC gaming that if something supports HDR, which presumably is more um, computationally expensive, like the colors look better, like the, the blacks are blacker, the whites are whiter, the reds are redder sort of thing. Is oh, the way I, I understand okay. it. And, okay. and I guess you can get some of that. I assume it's through like a wider color gamut or something is how that must be coming through. Yeah, so it almost so. certainly yeah. requires a new TV. Yeah, yeah for um, sure. And I think I think that, I mean, well, we know from HDR photography on their phones, which we've had since the five, I think, right? Um, that... Um, it's like um, it does a double exposure, right? So yeah. right, the um, one that's that's over and the one that's under, and then kind of somewhere in the middle where it blends things together. Yeah, and you have to go into Photoshop to put to put to actually see the image together as one one image kind of thing. But you know, it's kind of it's kind of lame to be looking at it on a monitor because apparently it's got more more stuff in it than you can display on a typical monitor, right? It's like it's like those TV commercials for better TVs on the TV that you're watching at home. <laughs> yeah, you know, how can they demonstrate that really? Um, just an interesting side note, I actually have a picture of Steve Jobs on the stage at uh, WWDC that, that I didn't realize I'd taken an HDR. <laughs> he still doesn't look any good because he's still like tiny, right? Um, so Jaime, you have uh, something here on the follow-up? Bring it. Yeah. Um, this is follow-up to the joking suggestion I'd made that, hey, we've got all these assistants. We have Cortana. We have Siri. We have you know, Alexa and the Google Assistant. And by golly, there's probably an opportunity out there somewhere for somebody to have a Kickstarter that has another assistant speaker that all you do is you talk to it and it talks to the other ones to figure out, you know, what the best solution is. Like, hey, I sure would love to go to a movie today. Okay, great. Ask my uh, number one, right? My commander, William T. Riker, first officer here to go, you know, go do what I need. And they talk to the rest of the senior staff, sort of analogy. Well, Microsoft and Amazon are partnering to integrate their respective digital assistants being um, Cortana and Alexa. In, in, in this case, it's it's not super deep integration. It, it's going to be, hey, assistant, open the other assistant. Um, 
so it's really at the level of being yet another skill or app on these platforms. But I think the fact that they're um, allowing this sort of thing, one, to happen sort of, you know, procedurally in terms of like, okay, yeah, they're not going to um, deny this sort of integration within their respective um, skills stores, but also that it opens the door for them to do more things together, right? And, and in the case of Amazon and Microsoft, they're both weak in some areas that the other is strong in, and those happen to be areas that Google and Apple have a bit more um, strength in, in terms of providing an overall solution, right? If you want calendaring, you want email, both Google and Apple offer those things. Amazon doesn't, as an example. Um, if you want to integrate with devices you actually have, Apple and Google have that, um, the combination of Amazon and Microsoft sort of covers that, right? So it's presuming you're, um, you know, you're using like a Windows machine perhaps at work or at home, or maybe you have an Xbox, or maybe you have an Amazon Echo or you know, any of the other Echo compatible you know, sort of devices. I think that's where this is coming into play here in terms of the strategy for their partnership. So, so how does this actually work? Do you have to have two devices sitting next to each other and you talk to one? And then it somehow talks to the other and you have to be quiet no. while they're talking to each other. No, no. That, <laughs> that was sort of my, uh, my joking one that like, okay, you can have all the different assistants, but you just have one that talks to all the other ones like in yeah. sequence yeah. Um, or, or maybe just, you know, programmatically through like APIs or something. In this case, you have one and you know, like one device, let's say you have like an echo and you can say, Hey, you know, open Cortana and it just you know, talks to the Cortana service. Or if you have a Cortana enabled device, like um, some of the new Windows laptops, I think with Windows 10, the latest updates all generally have that sort of capability, just like we have Siri on you know our MacBook Pros, for example. You can say, you know, Cortana, open up Alexa, and it will do that. So it's just um, doing it all on the back end then? Yeah, yeah. On the server side. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the APIs are talking to each other, right? Didn't we have a conversation about that a while ago? So not at the moment. So this this integration, as is described here in the article, doesn't talk about doing deeper things like, oh, um, you know, Cortana, tell Alexa to add something to my calendar or to to call somebody through my Echo or or do other things. Or likewise, um, you know, Alexa, tell Cortana that I want to um, listen to the latest presentation that I have saved in Office 365. Like that level of integration is not there yet. It's really more at the level of um, more like yet another skill. Like if you've ever experimented with using is a good example, um, like Kayak, I think, and I, and I want to say it's on the Google Home, where you say, hey, you know, Google, I want to talk to Kayak. And it says, okay, great, I'm switching over to Kayak. And Kayak has its own different voice. Like it actually sounds like a different person uh, talking to you. And it's like, oh, great, where do you want to go? And how much do you want to spend? And how many people are flying with you? That sort of thing. So I think it's more akin to that kind of experience rather than a fully deeply integrated um, API level integration. So it's not Skynet just yet, right? No, not just yet. <laughs> <laughs> but at least there, but, there's some gap that's that's being bridged here, right? And, and Jeff Bezos has said like he's totally open to doing the same kind of integration with Google's Assistant and uh, Apple's Siri as well. Oh, okay, cool. But we are just a little bit closer to the computers taking over and and us being their their slaves. <laughs> right. <laughs> Indeed. I said it all starts with a watch with an LTE. Yeah. Uh, okay. So next we have... So yeah, so uh, I just found this piece uh, a couple of days ago uh, from 9to5Mac about uh, it's a good time to check to see if your apps will work on iOS 11 or not. If they're not 64-bit comp- compatible, then um, you could be in trouble. I already had one casualty I found. Uh, it was an app I used to call, use called AirSharing 
sharing. I used to keep all my music for when I was jamming uh, in PDF form in, in, in air sharing. And it's one of the first apps I ever bought, got for my iPad and my phone, as a matter of fact. And the developer stopped supporting that years ago. So naturally, when I, I wasn't even thinking about it when I went to set up my iPad with, uh, with the beta 11, iOS 11 on it. And I immediately discovered that the app that had been on my home screen for the last, you know, how many years has it been? Seven years? Uh, no longer works. So you can go into um, your system settings on your phone and go into general and then about, and there's a, a section there called app cap compatibility. And when you tap on that, it will show you the apps that currently are only 32-bit and not, not supporting 64-bit. And you can tap on them and see if there's an update available or what have you. These, these are apps that are reported or, or, or recognized already by your system as not being 64-bit. Um, so you can decide now what, whether you need to find a replacement for them or whatever, rather than waiting until, you know, three weeks from now when you get your new iPhone 11, or sorry, iPhone 10th anniversary iPhone, let's call it that, today. Um, you won't be surprised when you're running iOS 11 and you can't open these apps anymore. So, so I just did that, and there's about 50 apps that I have on my phone really? that are not compatible, Yeah, including, I hate to say it, I'm embarrassed to say it, but a, a, several of my own apps right. that I really need to get uh, get to work upgrading and getting some new submissions in. Yeah, But if you're waiting to hear about scales and modes or look again, they're coming soon. Uh, uh, oh, so you click on the Applications tab. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I see some of the AR stuff that I use, AR Showcase, which is from String. I've talked about that on the show before. Um, yeah, well, the Apple remote we knew, or the Key, key Note remote. Flap, flappy Bird. <laughs> flappy Bird? Oh, my Flappy Bird's okay. Flappy Bird's on my list. Really? Oh, yeah, right. Mine, yep. too. That, yep. that makes me sad. Tricorder. The end of an arrow. Flight Control, which is an app that won an Apple Design Award, is on here. Uh, even Well, a couple of apps that I built for, for customers are, are in here that uh, are no longer supported. No longer in use either. So, yeah. Oh, my Toronto Path app. I use it to navigate all the time. The one that kills me, that, that breaks my heart, is Zippo Lighter. Do you guys have the Zippo Lighter app? I don't, no. Yeah, so if you're at a rock show, you can you can flip open the lighter and you can hold up a, like a flickering flame, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of, one of the first apps. Remember when there was this thing called iBeer or iPint or whatever, where you could make it look like you were drinking a beer when you, when the iPhone first came out? Those were like some of the early, early apps. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the Zippo lighter was right up there with that. I'm, that, that saddens me to see that it's not being uh, supported. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll have to find another app. Or maybe I'll make a video of it or something. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, so that's uh, our PSA on getting your... Um, Finding out what, what you're going to leave behind when we go to iOS 11. So, okay. um, the next story on here is about uh, Apple and Accenture partnering together to create more business um, enterprise-level iOS apps. Um, we already have IBM building apps for Apple. Um, and uh, this is a real quick post, a couple of quotes from Steve or some Tim Cook and from Pierre Natermi, of CEO of Accenture, talking about how they're going to get together and build apps. And it's another indication of what I was saying before about uh, when we talked about the pricing of apps is that, you know, I think I said before in this show that the, the big boys are going to, one of these days, somebody's going to show up, whether it would be Adobe or whatever, would come along and start building apps and, and eating our lunch, essentially. Um, so if you're in the app building game and that was your business, you've now got some pretty heavy hitting uh, competitors. However, Mark had a point about uh, the cost of uh, getting in with these yeah, guys. Yeah, I mean, Accenture is a very large, well-known and and known to be expensive consulting firm. So, so they're not going to make these apps for cheap and they're not going to make them 
fast. So so it's not necessarily competing with the apps that most of the people in our listener group are, are working on, I, I would think. Uh, they're, they're probably not going to compete with the indie app. If you're if you're building an indie app or a game, right, yeah, no, no. you're probably not going to go to Accenture to have them build that for you. No, no. I, what I meant, though, is like if you're if you're thinking, as we said earlier, that, you know, you can turn your business or pivot your business towards business, other businesses, enterprise level apps, mm-hmm. um, you know, they tend to go with the guys who have the, the proven track records and that kind of stuff and the sales team sure. and, and the IBMs and the Accentures of the world and, you know, large companies like that. They've they've always sort of yeah. been the ones, the sharks, if you will, right? Always yeah. been the yeah. ones out there getting the big fish or getting the big, big gigs, finding the fat whales and stuff. So Sure. Um, but, but yeah, so if, if you have a big budget, then yeah, that's that's definitely a way you could go. If you're if you don't have a huge budget, then there's still room for people like us uh, in the indie community. Right, right. Yeah, and I mean, like you know, also I'm also saying that, like you know, back in you know when we first all started this, and there weren't that many of us around who were doing this kind of work. You know, you might end up working for a large uh, company because you know there's like a, a team or a small you know segment of the of the office that decides you know to they need to build an app for their particular business unit, and they would bring in an independent developer or consultant to do that, right? So we did some work for mm-hmm. large American insurance company, for instance, who now would you know naturally go towards the bigger players because you know that's because uh, that's available to them, right? And that's you know the devil they know. Yep. You know, so those opportunities are going to be lost to some of us who had the chance to do that in the past. That's my point. Mm-hmm. Nothing, Jaime. I think the one quote here I'll read here. Uh, quote: If no one ever got fired for buying more Oracle, was the purchase side cliche? Then quote: Accenture will happily sell you all the Oracle upgrades you can budget was the sell side, <laughs> which <laughs> I think works really well. You'd mentioned IBM earlier in, in this segment about, uh, what is it they used to say? Nobody ever got fired for choosing IBM was right, the thing that people right. used to yeah. say. Um, That's right. I mean, they've built a reputation for sure, right? That, um, you know, if you're a small company, maybe you don't pick an Accenture because you can't afford it, or maybe you need something that's a little bit faster. But if you're a large enterprise, like a Boeing, for example, um, you're probably not going to choose, you know, random developer number five, even if they're hypothetically a great, like you, you need that sort of whole support side of things that like, Hey, if things go wrong, well, I chose Accenture, like they're known for doing well, um, that they have whole, you know, infrastructure to support their people doing well. And invariably we have somebody that they can, you know, we can go yell at until things do become well again. Whereas with somebody who's independent, you don't know. Right. And so it's in many cases, sort of a, a cover your butt sort of thing for people at these organizations. But there's yeah. also the, you know, as I mentioned, the supporting side as well, like, Hey, you know, we do need you to be available for these, um, rather large preliminary design reviews and, and so on and so forth that an independent developer may not want, right? Like you have to worry about like, okay, can I actually support uh, an enterprise customer like that? Right. Yeah. Accenture can, can always fly in a hundred more developers if they need them, you know, on the spur of the moment. Right. Yeah. Uh, whereas, whereas an indie, you know, or maybe it's one or two people just can't, just can't support that. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you may get tired and decide to go get a job and delivering pizza or something like that instead of writing apps. Right. It's kind of like the, the homebrew in, in the way that homebrew was around when computers first started up, um, you know, and, and it was smaller companies building computers. Now it's bigger, you know, mass market kind of companies. And the homebrew days of building apps is what I'm saying is kind of ending soon or going away soon. No, no. So, yep, yep. Yep. so that's. And this kind of this kind of goes along with what we've talked about before is the commoditization of our of our industry. It's becoming more standard, less right. of a niche thing. So so uh, unfortunately, there's there's less room for uh, you know the specialists. Uh, it, it's it's it becomes more of a you know a team of generalists. 
buildings. Right, things. right. Yeah, yeah. True. That is true. All right. And uh, last piece was, I think, uh, yesterday announced uh, by Google. They have rolled out their new um, AR core, it's called, and it's uh, meant to take on um, Apple in terms of an easy-to-use framework for throwing uh, AR kit or augmented reality experiences into the Android platform. So they had a bunch of videos rolling that out yesterday. Um, yeah, launching on the Pixel and the Galaxy S8, um, running Nougat, and soon to be Oreo, right? Um, mm-hmm. For building AR experiences. So it's interesting because Mark mentioned Tango last last week, I believe, right? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently this is, uh, according to one of the paragraphs here, less demanding than Tango in terms of hardware requirements. So more mainstream and, and I guess timely too, right? So didn't, um, I think I've heard in the Garmin or Mark Gorman uh, video that a bunch of other phones have been released either today or yesterday or something like that very recently, right? New phones. So, but anyway, that, that you know, uh, Google coming to the market with this in advance of the September announcement by Apple, right? Yeah, so yeah, Google's had since what June when WWC was to to they've known about this about AR kit since then. So sort of inevitable that this would happen, and they had all the technology in house. They just didn't have it in a nice, easy to use package with yeah. with a good SDK. So I, I imagine they they kind of scrambled for a couple of months and put this together, and 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 now they've got uh, parity. But uh, yeah, it was kind of inevitable. And it's, it's a good thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, it's what Jaime was saying, you know, that uh, AR kit is going to put uh, augmented reality in the hands of, you know, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of millions, it says here, according to Apple, or according to this article, um, overnight when, when iOS 11 officially ships. And I guess um, Google is going to try and do the same thing on the Android side with this product. Yeah, makes sense. Mm-hmm. It, it would have been kind of conspicuous in its absence if they didn't do something. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think the takeaway that I have here is that it says a lot about the impact or at least the perceived impact of what AR kit will do in the market that Google decided to put this together. Like it's not as if they, you know, they saw AR kit in June and said, holy smokes, like, you know, let's start doing some development now. And like clearly they already had the technologies, you know, pretty close. But I think it says a lot that they sort of repackaged things or or finished up whatever it was they were working on and say, okay, well this is what we're going to ship with so we can get something out soon. Um this wasn't mentioned at Google Google I.O. And that's sort of no, the, wasn't, the, yeah. the right place for that to be announced, not, you know, a random news article uh, on a random, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday in August. Um, so I think it says a lot that they had to pivot very quickly to say, hey, we're involved in this too, uh, even though they, they technically have been involved with it, at least as long as uh, Project Tango was around back in like, what, 2012, I think, when I desperately wanted Tango yeah, to become like a real thing. It's been, been around for a long time. Yeah. So I, I, I do think they, that the, that AR kit was, uh, was kind of a wake up call for for, for Google, they kind of had an oh crap moment. We've got to do something now, and so they they put this together based on that. That that's my feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, I think it's a good thing, uh, not only from the competition standpoint, but also sort of the the democratization of this technology that we talked about. And yep. for folks who who um, are driving at home, I recommend uh, you know pulling over and and watching the videos that are in the linked article because it, it's pretty impressive. It's it's a lot of the same sort of stuff you would see with AR Kit, where the the shadowing is handled very well, the depth sensing of uh, and edge sensing for surfaces is really good. And the key thing for here, un- unlike with Tango, is it's not going to require a whole bunch of crazy hardware requirements, which on the Android side is a much bigger deal because mm-hmm. they don't have an, an Apple who controls the entire stack and says, okay, great, we're going to spend 50 cents more on this processor, on this GPU or whatever it is that, that's required in order to make this work. Um, when you're Android manufacturer number 642, you, 
can't afford to do that because cost is um, where your whole your whole game is. And so that's, I think actually, this is- that's actually a really good point. Uh, so although Google is putting this out as a function a functionality that will be built into Android, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that all the Android phone makers are going to use it simply because of that the cost reasons. It, it costs money to put in sensors that you can use with a VIO and a, and a good camera. And uh, so I imagine there'll be a range where the high-end phones will support it really well. The medium-range phones will, will say they support it, but in practice, it might not work perfectly all the time. Uh, and the low-end phones might not even support it at all. Right. Good point. Yeah. And as far as the democratization of this technology goes, I think, you know, this technology has been around for a while and in various forms, and it sort of hasn't really mattered until, you know, iOS 11 very shortly here comes out because it will put it out immediately into, you know, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people's hands um, on day one, which is great. Um, But that's only a very small fraction of, um, you know, the total user base that's possible who who uses uh, smartphones. And so the second wave of democratization always has to come from the Android side where, you know, Apple sort of makes it matter. And then, you know, Google makes it available for everyone. Um, As time goes on, those chips become cheaper, you know, as long as it's um, at an area where, you know, most manufacturers can absorb the cost sort of thing where it sort of just becomes, oh yeah, it would be more costly for us not to integrate AR core, for example. And I'm looking at Apple Pay and Android Pay as being sort of the, the best analogy here where, you know, Android had NFC payments for quite some time before Apple Pay showed up, but didn't matter. It didn't change the world at all. Um, it was more of an interesting tech demo for, you know, really highly technical folks. Apple Pay made it so that, you know, large organizations had to say, oh, holy smokes, we have to support this or we have a competing thing. We're absolutely not going to support it. Let's go turn off these terminals sort of thing. At the very least, they made it, you know, a thing. And now Android Pay and as a follow-up, Samsung Pay has come along and we're much closer down the path of having, you know, seamless payments, you know, mobile payments for everyone. And I think this will be the same thing here with AR kit and AR core being sort of the one-two punch of making AR like an everyday reality for folks. Mm-hmm. Boy, and how did they miss the cross-branding opportunity here? So for folks, um, you know, there's like the Wizard of Oz Tin Man sort of robot thing that they have, but they also have a really interesting looking lion that I say, you know, if you had just worked with Kellogg's Frosted Flakes and that was Tony the Tiger, <laughs> how great would that have been as a co-branding opportunity? Yeah, well, maybe it's supposed to be the Cowardly Lion or whatever, but... Uh... Yeah, I think that was the intention, but you know, we change it up a little bit, you know, we, we put a new modern spin on things. Yeah, it looks more like the lion from Madagascar than uh, so you had said that about the Tin Man. I didn't put that two and two together. It looked to me, it looks to me like the the character mm-hmm. that uh, what's his name plays on uh, Madagascar. Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller, that's him. Yeah, Bl- Mr. Blue Steel himself. Mr. Blue Steel, your pal. Yep. Well, I guess that sort of brings us to the uh, Picorama part of the show. Um, so, how <laughs> I many do you have a pick for us? I do, and it's called uh, WTF: Why the Failure Auto Layout Instead of uh, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot that we're normally used to. Oh, that's a very simple site. All you do is you take the constraint error log that you got from um, Auto Layout when it complains. It says, "Hey, you know, I had to break one of these constraints in order." to make this um, ambiguous layout work. Um, specifically, you put the part that's between the parentheses. And when you do that and you hit the go button, it gives you a nice visual representation of here's what those constraints mean, right? Like in my case that I chose an example that uh, this view's leading edge to equal the images, the image view's leading edge and the trailing view and so forth. And that the image view's width should equal 28. Very critically, the one that I like um, the best is that it adds a sort of like a, I don't know, what do you call this, Tim? You, you were like in print stuff, right? Like, like a data sort of annotation. Right. So I have one here that says the view's width should equal zero with the little dag- 
dagger uh, symbol on. And the dagger says, this constraint was added by a stack view to enforce its spacing, distribution, or alignment. Hmm. So those are like the ones you might see, like, what the heck is this UISV hyphen hiding thingy? Well, if you hadn't looked it up on Stack Overflow like I have before, you wouldn't know that, oh, uh, that's a stack view that's tinkering with this stuff. So the stack view is adding its own constraints to this layout. And that might be one of the concerns that I have for this particular constraint example I chose. So just a tiny thing. I mean, it's it's not going to magically, you know, resolve your constraint for you or anything. And it's the sort of thing that you could infer yourself if you read the layout constraint uh, warnings that you get. I find this just a little bit easier to visualize and say, oh, oh, yeah, obviously I shouldn't have done that. That's what was happening here. Uh, with the extra bit of um, of nicety that it also has the uh, auto, sorry, the stack view side of things. And you can create a permalink to it. So if you wanted to share it with your coworkers and go, hey, like, I think this is what the problem was. Yeah, this looks pretty useful. I wish you could do the same with just cut and paste your storyboard source code into the website and have it tell you <laughs> what the constraint issues are. Because sometimes you don't even get to this point, you know, where you're struggling with the with just the 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 red uh, red circles in storyboard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, nice stuff. Yeah, or even with uh, with uh, standard errors, you get a lot. I mean, build errors, right? <laughs> nice to punch those in. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but but uh, just out on a slight tangent there, I'm I'm getting to the point now where I get random errors in Xcode all the time, and there's not even a stack trace. It just kind of mm-hmm. crashes, and I get no kind of stack trace. Uh, this is with Swift. Do you ever do you see these? Do you see that mean, a lot more than you ever did before? You mean the app crashes, or, or you get lo- or the code completion stops, or whatever? Like, sure, it's not a source kit crash, or oh well, there's there's the code completion issues, or you know, just it shows a random error, and you have to wait like ten seconds. Yeah, before yeah, it clears yeah. up the error. Yeah, that's very annoying because usually when that happens, I'm trying to fix the error and I'm changing things before I realize. Oh wait a minute, it's just it just hasn't caught up yet. Right, but but also at the same time, there are there are times now when I get crashes uh, while I'm developing and Xcode just gives doesn't give a stack trace at all. It just pops me up to the app delegate or things like that. I mean, it always did that occasionally. Usually when you were doing multi-threading things, that would happen. But now it seems to happen way more than it ever used to. Kind of annoying hmm. thing. Oh, interesting. Maybe. I, I don't know. I wonder if your setup is a little bit different. So like mine is set up where I have all of these different like symbolic breakpoints that, hey, if this terrible condition happens, stop it here and, and let me see what happened. So I, do I wonder have if that, I... Yeah, I do have that kind of stuff, but maybe not as much as you. Yeah, there were a handful of, I think, Swift-related ones I have to go dig up and find. Um, I, like, set them and never think about them until, like, end up with a crash somewhere. Mm. Um, so I don't know them off the top of my head, but I wonder if that's why I haven't experienced that behavior, because my adding in additional configuration to Xcode has masked the behavior that you seem to be encountering. Could be. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also, this particular project that I'm working on has a lot of C in the background as well. So that might have something to do with it as well. Right, yeah. C exce- exceptions are not as well caught, I found, as Objective C exceptions or, or, or even Swift exceptions for that matter. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Tim, do you have a pick? I do. I have two, actually. Well, one and a half. Um, the first pick is uh, the um, Apple Human Interface Guidelines document that you probably are familiar with. They have an online version of it. And uh, today, Marin Todorov, a friend of mine, pointed out that the they have added a beta page to the Human Interface Guidelines that covers augmented reality. And in for those of you who don't know what the Human Interface Guidelines are, that's where Apple um, Apple excels at. But they have this whole document that tells you sort of their what they believe is the best practices for using the different tools, whether it's setting up visual designs or bars or controls or extensions and that kind of stuff. But uh, here under technologies, they have like Apple Pay and Game Kit and HomeKit and iCloud. 
cloud and so on and so forth. But this augmented reality thing, they talk about, uh, you know, how to use augmented reality to build, you know, uh, apps that are pleasing to your customer or uh, being mindful of what the customer is doing. And they've got some you know, things about haptic feedback and some some of their suggested do's and don'ts about uh, finding things. Um, what happens when you open up an augmented reality session for the user, how you display the regions that are being discovered in your in your app, um, how you might, you might want to do that, and interaction with virtual reality objects in terms of how to play around with them on the screen kind of thing uh, as you're building them. So that's kind of interesting addition in light of what we were just talking about with AR Core, as well as is Apple putting their sort of suggestive foot forward in terms of how to make a good experience for clients. So uh, I'll put that in the show notes and for people to have a look at it. That's very cool. Yeah. It's yeah, it shows we're entering we're entering a whole new whole new world with this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, when Apple starts putting together documents like this, it's uh, definitely something that they feel strongly about, and and they want. To, I think they want to make sure that you're not walking your clients off the end of a cliff as they're navigating right. around with their app, right, or walking into traffic, as it were, uh, as you're as they're using your app. I think, right, and and you know, mm-hmm. make it comfortable to use as well, right? Yeah, I think this is great because it's it's always good to have somebody with the sort of knowledge and time and money and resources to put together this sort of thing. I mean, let's be real clear: as excited as we are for ARKit and what AR Core can do, you are going to see in the next six months to a year a ton of very, very bad AR experiences. <laughs> and if yes. you remember what it was like um, when we first had, you know, these wonderful iPhones and how many terrible touch experiences there were, like it, it takes a while for people to figure this stuff out. So having somebody like an Apple put together a, hey, uh, don't reinvent the wheel here, use this kind of indicator instead, um, will save you a lot of time and effort and pain, I think. Right, yep. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know we actually did a few apps, like speaking of that, in the, in the early in the day where, you know, the designers had come to us to have a built an app built um, in such a way that it was more like a website, like, you know, it had pull-down menus and it had like rollovers and that kind of stuff. And that just totally didn't lend itself very well to, you know, a touch device, an iPad or, or what have you, right? So, um, and that's why, again, if you're, again, not familiar with home, human interface guidelines, we always suggest you go have a look at those in terms of how to build any kind of app, but uh, as well, augmented reality app here in this case right oh, mm-hmm. yeah best practice kind of thing because i mean obviously well i mean apple did have augmented reality at, at wwdc but they didn't go into great detail about it and now they've taken the time to put this together in advance of the operating system actually shipping which is interesting as well used to be we're all in the dark until you know this stuff hit the hit the streets right yeah. My second pick is sort of a pick. Anyway, I, um, as many of you know, whenever I go to a conference, I tend to write an article on RayWonderlick.com um, about the conference, some of the highlights and things like that. And so um, I had just finished publishing the um, 360 idea of 2017 conference highlights. And it's not so much a uh, best of as, as it would be like in the case of WWDC, we normally uh, get together as a group and uh, on the team and, you know, sort of pick what we think were the most compelling things. Not to say that any of this, the talks that I talked about in the in my article are, are good or bad, but um, I think these were, of the ones I did see, I saw quite a few, and and, um, and then I took a couple home with me, thanks to John's uh, collaboration, John Wilco's collaboration. Um, so yeah, so I talk about the keynotes that we saw, some of the uh, interesting talks, like the one by Jesse Chartier about, uh, you know, uh, education of students learning iOS and how to get, you know, more teachers as uh, to learn development so they can teach and 
bring up the next generations. So we talked about Sam Davis walk workshop um, last week, I think, right? Didn't we? And we talked about Rob Napier's uh, practical security. But anyway, here's my write up on that as well for you to look at uh, the deep learning and the TensorFlow by Talon Pince and Shiyutsi Tsumi. Ellen Shapiro had an interesting article on playing nice with designs. And there was a good talk by Casey Shum on iOS con- continuous delivery, which is an interesting idea. Um, and then, of course, you know, some of the things about like the stump, the experts thing and some of the game de- game jams that we that happened on the last ne- last evening. And they have sort of a 24 hour or an overnight, I guess, game jam. Um, just a good synopsis, I think, of what my experience was at 360iDev. And I guess some of what Jaime's was since he was around there for me, me for most of it as well. There you go. This, that's on RayWinnerLick.com. And I'll put a sh- link in the show notes. And um, I, I, I need to put a, a note in the um, article, but um, the videos aren't available just yet. John is in the process of uh, editing them and usually takes them a couple of weeks to get them all prepared. Um, and uh, so we'll we'll update the article as to when the talk videos are available um, by putting a link in the in the article itself. I'll let you know on the podcast as well. Sounds good. Can't wait to see the videos. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Tim. I'm I'm on the one hand disappointed, and on the other hand impressed that you decided not to put in our talk as part of the uh, the highlights, even though I'm sure the temptation was there. Um, well, to be honest with you, I did actually go through and because I got a recording of our talk, uh, I did go through and did you know honestly make notes as try to be impartial as, as I can. And um, yeah, it's sort of one of these things where I, um, as much as I like to blow my own horn, you know, I think it's important that you do that, learn to do that. I didn't think it was the right place to put it in there myself. Off. And I, you know, for the same reason, I didn't put some other talks in that. That uh, just because I know somebody or like them or whatever doesn't mean that it should sway my opinion. I had to, you know, quite a number of talks to pick from. Um, unfortunately, some of the ones, like uh, uh, some of them, kind of got like an honorable mention kind of call out. Um, the Xcode debugging by uh, Ajaz and Sari. Um, I only was able to give him a paragraph because I was too busy trying to follow along with the amazing talk that he gave to actually take notes on the talk. Um, and then, of course, we talked about Ben DeFrench. Francesco's talk on uh, concurrency, um, which was really cool. And uh, then I also got a copy of Jean McDonald's talk. I didn't, I wasn't able to attend her talk, but uh, hers was interesting too. So, and then of course I, I uh, got the uh, dystopia piece in there by Jay Freeman. But um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot to cover and uh, a very short time to write the article in. So does that explain it? <laughs> it does. Yeah. yeah. Although our talk was great, I have to say, you know. Indeed it was, Tim. Yeah. I didn't even mention the podcast here. You didn't notice that either right <laughs> yeah. there was a live podcast by the way during the show as well yeah that was a lot of fun for those of you who don't know who are just listening to the show now uh, for the first time we took the opportunity to do a live podcast recording from uh, 360 iDev and we asked uh, Jean McDonald and who's now with, who has her own podcast called Sestracast and um, we had Joe Shiplinski of Least Notes uh, join the conversation as well as well as Tammy Tammy Coron was there she was the special surprise last minute talk and swag bag recipient <laughs> yep all right so that's uh, that's the name of that tune so i guess that's it for another week so hi me if people want to get a hold of you on the interwebs where would they look they can find me on Twitter. I'm uh, at Dev with the Hair. But if they want to find me in person, there's a rare opportunity here because um, at the end of September, September 30th, I will be giving a talk at the Swift Cloud Workshop 2, the second edition happening there in uh, Austin, Texas. So this uh, Cloud Workshop is all about running Swift everywhere but iOS devices. So if you're interested in doing cloud-based stuff, you might want to come check it out. My particular talk is entitled uh, Elementary Celebrity Recognition, My Dear Watson, where we will use... Um, 
IBM Bluemix to run Swift on the server and use IBM's Watson Visual Recognition API to figure out exactly who is and who is not a celebrity. Oh, really? Hmm. Okay, and Mark, if people want to get a hold of you, where would they look? Uh, you can send me an email at markr at smapsoft.com or try to reach me on Twitter at, at smapsoft, but no guarantees about that one. All right. And uh, and speaking of, of Texas, I uh, just want to give a shout out to any of our listeners who might be in the Houston area. Hope you're doing well with the uh, hurricane and, and related effects there and, and uh, hope everything, hope all is well. Right, yeah. yeah. Indeed, that was that was definitely crazy and I have family, uh, some family in that area, so it was definitely a, a crazy, you know, 48, maybe 72 hours just checking in with every one of them, you know, through various uh, channels that I have to communicate with them and make sure everybody's all right. So um, heart goes out to the, the folks of Texas. Cool. Yep. Yeah, we'll talk a bit more of that in the, in the after show. What well, is at the top of the show, I'm Tim Mitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on Twitter, and that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. And until next week, we'll say goodbye. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. If you want to find out more about the podcast or see the episode show notes, visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. You can get in touch with us on the website or follow us on Twitter at mtjc underscore podcast. If you have feedback or questions, send us a tweet with the hashtag AskMTJC. If you like the show, please consider recommending us to a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or pledging any amount at patreon.com slash mtjc. You can find details on how to help us out on our website at mtjc.fm slash sponsor us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. So I know Texas is a huge state, I may, but so Austin is nowhere near where the trouble is. It depends on what you consider that it's, it's kind of in that triangle with, um, see from Houston, you would go to San Antonio, Austin, Dallas sort of area. Um, and in fact, that's where the, you know, if there was to be an evacuation order, that's probably the cities where people would go. But each one of those cities, uh, with the exception of Dallas ended up getting a ton of storm as well. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously not hit as much as Corpus Christi or Galveston on the coast and Houston just a little bit further in. Um, it was huge. This is like one of those uh, rare event kind of hurricanes to hit that part of Texas. Yeah, and it was moving really slowly too, right? Like, uh, wasn't it moving super slow? Like the- I think so. It feels like it just kind of hung around beating up on the area. I think it very quickly became not a Category 4, which was second from the highest, um, and became a Category 1. It, it seems like becoming the Category 1 was actually kind of worse in some ways because they stopped worrying about about the the tornado sort of aspect of it and started worrying more about just flash flooding and and flooding in general um just so much water coming down that their drainage solutions and the bayous and other things that they use to drain water normally just were not effective or not 100 percent effective right, right and it's re- is it relatively flat there or just flat across texas in general like I'm, i guess a lot of these places that flooded are like low areas like i see that houston on the map here is close to the gulf right so probably got a yeah i'd have to check like a, 
uh, a topography um, sort of map for that. I, it is prairies. I have a friend whose family is in Houston, and he says it's it's completely flat and concrete. So there was part of the problem was there was just nowhere for the water to go. It just right. it would just pool up in, in the streets and, and just stay there. Right. So yeah. So I guess it is it is just very very flat the whole thing. So did the whole city get flooded, or just parts that are closer to the water? Like I, mean, I don't know for sure, yeah. but I, but I think pretty much the whole city got got flooded. Wow! And not just Houston; it was it was um, Corpus Christi as well, and and uh, uh, what's the one in between? This Victoria is another city in between that got hit really hard. Hmm. Yeah, it's just all, all around pretty pretty bad. Seems like it might might even be worse than Katrina, right? Uh, although we won't know that for a little while. But is the rain all done? Like, or is there more coming in? Or what's the story? Not sure. I don't know. I have not seen the latest updates. Um, but yeah, it's people are saying it's going to take months, maybe years to recover. Yeah, you know, fix all of the the damage that was was dealt with. Uh, oh. Well, Corpus Christi is quite a ways down the coast there too. So, hmm. Yeah, it just kind of slammed in from that angle, which is is interesting because I don't recall I don't recall hurricanes coming from quite that angle. But I felt like it, they usually came through um, through like Mexico first before, rather than coming sort of directly out of the Gulf of Mexico itself. Um, so I think that might have been part of what, what kept it from, or sorry, what um, kept it from dissipating before it got to, to Texas. Right. But isn't it isn't it like hurricanes on, on the east side of the U.S. and cyclones on the west kind of thing? Or, or is that uh, an Egypt or an Asia thing? You guys know? Mm, definitely hurricanes uh, in the east because I think of like Florida and, and parts of that eastern seaboard. I don't think yeah, I heard San, of cyclones Sandy in the was, west. Yeah. No, I, I haven't heard of that. I, I always thought a cyclone and a hurricane would same thing they are the same or not that's that's always what i thought yeah, yeah. i think that they call cyclones when they're up in, in the pacific right so that's how i always understood it anyway whatever mm-hmm. or someone will yell at their phone about this <laughs> it's quite a quite a hike from where i am look at this let's see what this first google result says what is the difference between a hurricane cyclone and a typhoon oh typhoon right hurricane cyclones and typhoons are all the same weather phenomenon we all just use different names in different places in the atlantic and northeast pacific the term hurricane is used the same type of disturbance in the Northwest Pacific is called typhoon and cyclones occur in the South Pacific and Indian Ocean from National Ocean yeah, Service. So typhoon over by of. Japan and Korea and places like that, right? And then the Indian Ocean would be cyclone. I guess Australia as well. Interesting stuff. <laughs> well, like I said, we all feel uh, feel for you guys down there. Yeah, and they've been telling us that uh, if you want to contribute something for the people down there, um, send cash because that's uh, apparently the, they can do the most with uh, money for people supporting them. Yep. So uh, we decided which phones we're getting if we're, we're going to come up with a new $1,000 phone. Don't know. I have to see if there's a home button first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got to see how that premium phone stacks up. I'm assuming that $999 is the base model yeah, for that for premium sure. yep, phone. Yep, yep. So I have to see what, what base considers. Is I have a 64 gigabyte iPhone um, 7 Plus here, and that seems reasonably good for me. I don't know that I need much more space. So if the base model is 64 gigs at $999, I think I'll get that one. If it becomes $1,099 or 11.99 to get 64 gigs presuming that 32 gigs is going to be the baseline for the premium right i might think about it a little bit more well i, I sort of look at it from the ipad pro um 12 inch because i think that the minimum you can get on that was 128 right what do they have on there now so i'm kind of thinking that they'll have like a uh 128 or maybe even a 256 and a 512 that sound reasonable why would you need 512 on a on a phone though especially with things like uh, icloud services and stuff like that being offline right uh, yeah no so it, well, with all this ar kit stuff will be a lot more video on your phone yeah so it looks like the 64 
64 gig is the base model for uh, the iPad Pro line right now, including the 10 inch, 10.5 inch, and they go 256 and 512. I have um, 256 in my in my um, iPad Pro because it was the only one available with um, a cellular. Um, you had to get the uh, 256. Yep, we are going into what is it Labor Day weekend? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this year has gone by fast and slow, depending on the time of the year. Yeah, that's true. So when are the kids back to school in your neighborhoods next week? Oh, they're already back. So. Traffic is traffic's insane. Colleges are back, so the traffic's gotten really bad. Right, right. Week. Hmm. Look at that. You can only get rose gold in a 10.5-inch uh, iPad Pro. That's a shame. Oh, really? That's a shame. Yeah. <laughs> well, here. No, this is U.S. site I'm looking at. Yeah, I don't know. It's going to be interesting because, I mean, like, you know, there's going to be the whole, whole bunch of diehards who just buy the phone right the minute the minute they're announced, right? So we can get them ASAP. But it's kind of like sight unseen. It's, well, I guess it's the same way it was with the iPhone 6. We really didn't have a chance to get our mitts on one until we actually bought one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think I'll be up um, when they didn't do it normally. Midnight Pacific? Yeah. 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 That sounds about right. So I'll probably be up at midnight, you know, Pacific and whatever day it is that they make pre-orders available and and do that yeah um, three o'clock in the morning for me yeah that was so brutal when i had to do that for oh yeah. was it like the apple watch i think when i was at ns north right yeah. that one year mm. yep. yeah yeah and then and then it turns out that uh and it was whether you use the app versus the website and you know that kind of stuff and uh the app was much more responsive than the website and in my case i'll probably go through the uh rogers website to try and get a phone as well always a challenge yeah there's just i don't know that there's anything out there that can handle that sort of scale um, look what ended up happening when the Nintendo, the NES Classic, was available on Amazon. It brought Amazon to its knees temporarily, and this is a you know the number one web service and number one retailer provider. Um, and look at what happened this very weekend with um, the pay per view system that could not handle uh, Conor McGregor versus oh, really? uh, Floyd Mayweather. Wow! Yeah, they had to delay the fight because the pay per view system wasn't um, wasn't showing anything for a while. All the streaming, and, really, and, you know, of course, people who got the video to their, their cable boxes and everything. It's just could not handle. So they actually delayed the flight. Scale. That's amazing that they would fight. That's amazing that they would do that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the only, it wasn't like days. It was just like, no, I mean, yeah, but still know, a few hours. Still, oh, hours. Really? I, I think, I think it started kind of late from what I recall. Wow. Can you imagine the people who paid like the million dollars a seat to sit there in the, stu- in the studio and watch them fight, having to wait like 20 minutes or 30 minutes for the Netflix to come back online or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently, the boxer won, right? Is that what I heard? Yes, in the tenth round, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, really? It went that far, right? Eh? Yeah, but given the kind of boxer that Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather yeah, is, yeah. he's a very defensive kind of boxer. Oh, okay, so it kind of made sense that he would, to plan, wait until the you know Conor McGregor is not used to fighting that that long, right? It's like 20 minutes probably tops for for most of the UFC fights. So if you just wait for him to tire himself out because he's not used to that kind of training, and then start striking when he's weak, right? Right, right. I think that was what the strategy was. Huh. Yeah, it just it seemed to me. I know that the other dude had done Conor McGregor had done um, was a boxer before the AFC stuff, right? Was it AFC? UFC, UFC Ultimate Fighting oh, Champ- UFC, Champion yeah. Championships. Know, system. Barbarian is what it is. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's a tough one, right? Like I, I never thought that Conor McGregor would win, except for you know some lucky uh, uh, punch, right? Like that's like the only possibility. Uh, it was very clear to me that a, that a boxer would win that. Just like if you put Floyd Mayweather in an MMA fight, like he's going to get destroyed by Conor McGregor, right? He doesn't know how to use all of his limbs to fight. He knows how to 
to use his, his upper body. And, and right, likewise, right. Conor McGregor was not used to being unable to like grab a guy and knee him in the groin, right? Like it's like a, a whole set of tools that he's not accustomed to. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but it does make me think of like um those like cross sport sort of battles. Maybe they should do like a two out of three somehow. And I don't know what the third one is, but let's say you take Usain Bolt and Michael Phelps and have them compete against each other. And, and, and a shark. With some metric. A shark, right? And, and yeah. a shark, right? Yeah, sure. So both swimming, of course, I expect Michael Phelps to win, but also in like a hundred meter or two hundred meter dash. And I don't know what the third thing is. Maybe maybe both. Well, if they did a triathlon, they could have biking in there as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, you wonder how Usain Bolt would do in, in like a long distance running thing because he's a sprinter, right? Right. But but could he run a, a marathon? You wonder. Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a different kind of different kind of uh, energy, right? But it's funny though. Yeah, the yeah. long distance running is you know that's how we survived because as hunters we were able to outrun the the deers and the gazelles to the point where they got tired and we caught up to them and killed them, right? So that's our claim to fame. Not to mention escaping from tigers. True. <laughs> we just outsmarted them yeah i don't think i think i think that the uh, tigers got quite a few uh, people right i'm sure they did yeah mm-hmm. fast. Mm-hmm. i think i think what you do is climb a tree if a, if a tiger's chasing you you don't try to run away from it well tigers can climb trees no they can't they can't they're cats that's a good question they are rather big they're like 400 pounds i wonder let's see all right go- i don't think tigers google no. can tigers climb trees <laughs> How good at Let's tigers? See, how good? Seldom. Oh, is it the same oh. Quora article we're reading? Yeah, yeah. They're quite. They're not very good if you compare them to leopards. Right. I, I take it back. Don't climb a tree if there's a tiger chasing you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the what the strategy is for them. Like you know, for bears, they're supposed to just sort of like lie and right down and yeah. pretend to, yeah. to be dead. Or, or if it hasn't gotten to that point, if they're actually attacking you, no, no. You, if you're getting attacked by a bear, you big. shoot your friend and let run like hell. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know with tigers, they don't like to attack prey head on, which is why people in India will wear those masks that have like a it look like a pair of eyes looking backwards. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Hmm. Oh, I don't know that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. At least that's what that's supposed to be for. <laughs> I'm going to have to look that up and see if that's true too. Um, <laughs> but I don't, I don't actually know what the strategy is for something like a like a tiger. Tiger in a tree. I think probably hitting the trying to aim for the soft bits of whatever kind you could or probably your only chance if, if, if fighting is an option um, make it so you're not you're not worth the trouble right right how to defend <laughs> against a tiger try to remain calm back away slowly in the event that the tiger is tracking you or has begun to snarl at you and seems likely to react stay calm make yourself big try to look look and feel brave repelling a tiger attack with noise do whatever you can to survive that's the fourth point <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good advice. <laughs> Run like hell. Yeah. And of course, there's Monty Python's uh, Defense Against Fresh Fruit video. What to do if somebody attacks you with a banana? You've seen that one? No? No, I don't, I don't think I recall that one. Uh, should I should I spoil it for you or <laughs> let you go off and enjoy it? Uh, I guess I can go off and enjoy that one. That's probably a, a clip I can find on YouTube. Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes, but I've, I got one here I can share with you. Look at this. So, repel an attacking tiger with noise, which in this WikiHow article has like, this person has a hand handgun right if you have a firearm shoot it in the air it's like i don't know about that i think i'm shooting the damn tiger <laughs> yeah, that's right <laughs> as an option i don't know that a handgun could, could take down a tiger but again like shoot them in the soft bits uh yeah, wherever if you, know, you get shot off. in the face yeah. yeah you might be like holy crap i'm not gonna attack this thing you, yeah. you run the, uh, the risk of pissing him off though i mean I, I think you're not supposed to preemptively shoot the tiger but right. i think if it's coming at you i get both the benefit of the noise and the holy crap that hurts right sort yeah. of thing. Shoot, shooting them in the 
the eye might just work. Right. If you attempt to shout at the tiger, do so with full confidence. Any nervousness that is betrayed by your voice may incite the tiger to attack. So I think what they're saying here is that if you're going to go full on into it, you have to practice your um, your Hugh Jackman Wolverine roar beforehand so you can do this without even thinking about it. Interesting. Interesting. Oh, yeah, they talk about the two-faced mask here as well. Where's that? Interesting. Uh, scroll down a bit. On that WikiHow page, under preventing a tiger from attacking, point number four. Oh, how to survive. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was actually pictures. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This mask is interesting. It's it's like some sort of mix between um, you know Jason Voorhees and and, and Iron Man. Yeah. And since it seems to be wood, I think, for this mask, I'm not even going to yeah, throw in like the it. mask from you know the mask. I don't know if it had a name, but the the Jim Carrey one. Mm, yeah. I don't understand why they went so graphic on the avoid inadvertently challenging a tiger's mark. <laughs> I feel like yeah. the the anatomical correctness was not necessary here. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it's like a tiger with hemorrhoids. <laughs> Interesting stuff. How did we get onto this subject? Yeah, I'm actually kind of lost. I, this didn't have anything to do with, with Tony the tiger. No, no, no. So how do we how do we end up on this topic of uh, avoiding tigers? We'll have to go back and listen to the show. Oh, yeah. oh, oh you're, you're talking about uh, chasing down gazelle. Oh, right. And I said, right. I said escaping from tigers. Right, right. That's where it came from. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. So did everybody watch the uh, Game of Thrones finale last night? I did. Uh, I haven't I haven't seen any anything, unfortunately. Ah, I think I'm, I think we're going to end up subscribing to HBO now or oh, go really? whichever one it is yeah. um, for this long weekend and just binge through that and maybe some of Silicon Valley as well. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, you know what else is good is um, uh, I'm dying up here, which is about the early days of um, um, stand-up comics. Oh, I haven't seen that's that. on HBO okay. as well. Um, I didn't realize that this. I thought this was the last season. I was surprised when it just ended after seven episodes. Yeah. No, there's one more season. Okay, but I mean... Another another seven-episode season. Yeah, another short season. But have all the seasons been seven episodes? I thought they were more like ten. No, they used to be long. They were longer. Yeah? They were longer. Just, I guess it's just so much I, to co- so much cost to make them these days, I guess? Or? Probably, yeah. They're, they're going for the high production, you know, lots of CGI stuff. Yeah. So without trying to spoil it for Jaime, what did you think about this season in general? The, well, so they've... Okay, so they've gone beyond the books. So oh, they yeah. don't have any source material. Right. Uh, but I think they've destroyed the story and destroyed the characters but it's fun to watch yeah yeah it's visually good mm-hmm. the stories the story is just a mess <laughs> um this whole season well i can't spoil it yeah yeah it, but the whole second half of the season with the wild goose chase just to set up the really to set up the final scene mm-hmm. if you know what i'm talking yes, about I do. You know exactly what you mean yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, just people acting completely out of character, doing silly stuff, just just so that they could have this one big. You're talking about the very last part where they the defense is the taken very out. last scene. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's funny though. It's, as soon as that, as soon as that battle ended, you know, first thing I thought to myself, it was so obvious what the White Walkers would do, right? So, yeah, that's all we can say, Jaime. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's tough to say 100% spoiler free. I have, I have some notions of things that might have happened based on various unrelated things that in, in social media that stuff crops up. Yeah, um, well, I can tell you, a couple of characters die. Which, <laughs> undoubtedly, <laughs> it wouldn't be Game of Thrones uh, uh, as a season if that was the case. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of which, the 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 high profile death towards the end. Yeah. Uh, although you know, probably it was deserved. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you could sort of guess that it was going to happen eventually. I thought the way they they portrayed it in the show was just kind of weak. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It just kind of came out of nowhere. Oh, you mean the last little bit with, there? The, the actual last. The last last, last little thing. Yeah. 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 So they spent a lot of time on the lead up. I thought yeah. on the lead up going in a different direction and then just for shock value switch it up at the yeah end. don't tell him that he'll be he'll be looking for it well oh sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it's it's cool and everything. Um, it's sort of the the fate you, you you take when you you don't watch it as it goes along. It, it's very rough. Like definitely the first twenty four hours are the the toughest to to avoid uh, social media for a while and let it cool down. Mm-hmm. Um, then it gets a little easier to avoid. But um, yeah, I kind of wonder how much of this is or what I'm hearing in terms of um, um, less than fully satisfied with this. I wonder how much of it is them going off. You know, the fact that they don't have the books which i mean they still have the major plot points from the author himself right it's not like they just went 100 percent in their own direction they've um they've gotten you know like is he, is he at least mean, the major outline you mean he sort of told of them where, where he thinks the where he thinks things should go in the in the story like like some yeah, well yeah yeah you know we, we know that he that he at least gave them the very ending oh did he oh but okay yeah yeah but but it's you know who knows of the you know the sort of the the the, the plot points along the way that they've had yeah they don't seem like the kind of thing that the original that GRR Martin would have come up with because right. in many cases they they just completely contradict some canon some basic canon that the book set up right. um you know there's one spoiler thing that I could talk about if if uh, mm-hmm. Jaime's okay with it sure um spoilers spoilers so, go ahead <laughs> yeah so spoilers spoilers so one one of the big things in the books is that only a targaryen could ever ride a dragon oh really the dragon uh, won't allow anyone but a targaryen to ride the dragon right yeah right and this season everybody and their uncles and and their dead cousin has been oh that's true that's true yeah that's true yeah, but so it, that's book stuff. Did they ever mention that in the series itself? I'd have to go back and I really don't in, remember in that the show. Point. No, in the show, probably not. No. Probably not. Mm-hmm. Probably not. Interesting. There's a lot. If you haven't read the books, you, you ought to. You, I mean, if you enjoy this kind of thing, the the amount of depth and detail and and um, and like well constructed plot yeah. is so high in the books. Well, it's interesting, Mark. And so the, the episode that you weren't on, Jaime and I had a big long conversation about Harry Potter at one point, and um, he's never read the Harry Potter books, but he's only seen the movies. And have you read the, some of the books, Mark? No, I haven't. You haven't, eh? no. Well, because I mean, in the, same sen- in the same sense, I think what you're trying to say is that there are so many subplots and so many um, parts in the Harry Potter books that they just, they had no time to cover in the movies, right? So entire, mm-hmm. like, like entire, um, like uh, civilizations, if you want to call it that, or entire cultures, subcultures that are in the Harry Potter books are completely avoided in, in the movies. Like to the yeah. to the point where like there's a there's a scene where Harry Potter gives um, the house elf a sock right where you know and and the the house elf is like oh my god I can't believe you gave me a sock and like there's no explanation as to why he's you know gushing over this sock when if you if you read the books you'd know that house elves aren't allowed to own property right and by giving oh. somebody giving a house elf a piece of property which is symbolized by clothing right you're you know you're um, you know raising the the status of 
this of this house elf beyond you know typical house elfdom, right? And there's a whole sort of subplot in in the stories about the rights of house elves and you know how they struggled through their whole society to you know and Harry Potter comes along and starts to sort of break that that barrier down for them as well, right? But that whole subtext is completely missing in the movies, you know. Mm. And I think probably in the same way that there are probably things like you said, like only a Targaryen could drive, ride a dragon. I mean, how could we possibly know that? How, only having seen the TV shows, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So another big thing. There, I mean, there's so many things, but another big one is uh, Sansa. Her entire arc mm-hmm. uh, for going everything that happened to her at Winterfell and all and all that right. happened to someone else in the book. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Never happened to her. Really? So she, she yeah. didn't get married so off to the goofball and no, no, happened to someone else. Yeah. Interesting. What was his name? Hmm. The the guy that she married, uh, or... Ramsey. Ramsey. Is it Ramsey? Yeah, Ra- Ramsey Bolton or Ramsey, Ramsey Snow. Bolton. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He was yeah. he was a Ramsey, piece of yeah. work, man. <laughs> yep, yep. It's funny all these guys. You know, they get killed from uh, Game of Thrones, and then they go off and work on these next really cool looking shows. And I kind of wonder if it's if they get killed off because it's in their contract and they have to get out of it or whatever, right? <laughs> Or yeah, they see they see the show kind of winding down, so they find another gig. I guess, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah. Yeah, some interesting things. I mean, like you know, Richard Bean. Richard Bean, he's the guy who played um, Stark, right, at the beginning. The guy from the from uh, Sean, 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 Bean. Sean Bean. Yeah, he was in an inter- in an interesting show after. Um, after uh, that, but they only did a season. It was it was basically played a, um, a, a, a like what do you call it? a double agent spy who is un- deep undercover in Russia, uh, who comes out and he's now on the Allied side and, and sort of you know how his life unravels once he's come back out you know of deep cover. Uh, it was an interesting story. I forget what it called, American Spies or something like that or whatever Legion maybe it was called. But yeah, they only did a season of it and then then I guess it got canned. But it was looking pretty good. Yeah, as as far as setup goes, having Sean Bean be Ned Stark, a character yeah. that's so central to the first season and then shockingly dies. Yeah. It was was great for that first season because it's like he's a big enough sort of actor that you would expect him to be around, especially because right. his like his whole picture is on the stupid box of the DVDs, right? It's like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> obviously this guy sticks around as like the main character, and nope, he's not. Yeah, but if you had read the books, though, Mark, wouldn't you know that that he gets it in the for, at the end of the first you, book? You would know, but it was equally as big a shock in the book as it was in the show. Yeah, yeah. Possibly more because because a lot of so the way the books are written, uh, it's 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 all in in the each each chapter is in is kind of within the mind of a different character, right? And you know, so a lot of characters repeat. So there's 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 a bunch of you know there's a bunch of main characters and it that kind of cycles around them. But but you're you're in you know you're in the head of Ned Stark and you and you're seeing the whole his whole thought process and 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 he's having flashbacks about about. Uh, you know, the stuff with the tower and all that. And that's, so the, the first Game of Thrones book actually is, is, is kind of a mystery story at the same time as being an adventure story. Cause it's all the mystery about, uh, you know, what actually happened back at the tower and, and, and in the rebellion. And you get a little bit more and more revealed about the rebellion and, and the details. And, and, uh, so the, the, the question who is, Jon Snow's mother, uh, and you know, now we know that it's not really the mother, it's the father, but you know, but but who is Ned Stark's? Uh, sorry, who is Jon Snow's mother was was kind of the central mystery of the of the first book, uh, and it was played up way way more in the book than in than in the show. So so I I kind of thought in the show it was sort of a last minute you know throw in that oh you know Jon Snow's not really a bastard and his parents are really so and so. 
but in the book it's that mystery is being built up and built up and built built up over several books so it's Hmm. It's much more effective, I think. Sorry, that was kind of a spoiler again, Jaime. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, I don't know about the mother part, which is still confusing to me, but the father part, they hinted, or maybe explicitly said at the end of season six that it was um, uh, Baratheon, I forget his, his name. The, the Targaryen. King. Targaryen. Rhaegar Targaryen. The, did, they, oh. did they say that at the end of season six, Mark? They, uh, at the, at the end? Strongly. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, let's yeah, see. I might, actually, I might have missed it. Did they actually say it? No, they don't they say it, but they tell, but that's where you find out that, that, that uh, Ned's Stark has taken him on and pretending to be his father. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so the whole mystery aspect in the books is is comes from the fact that well, you're inside Ned Stark's head, and he's remembering, you know, he's remembering his sister asking him, you know, promise Ned, promise me. Oh, know, is that who was his sister? Okay, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, they never. Okay, so in the book, they never make the connection between all the promise me Ned, promise me Ned from his dying sister. And Jon Snow, but you can sort of piece it together because right after that, he suddenly had this son, this you know quote bastard son. But but Ned Stark's whole character is that he's the noble guy who's he's the one who always does the right thing. So it's completely out of character for him to have a bastard, bastard son. son. Yeah. And then there was this mystery that slowly revealed about you know what did what did he have to promise his sister and what happened to his sister and what are the details there and although they never give it away there's there's lots and lots of clues which is why you know this rumor has been around for years that that uh, that he it's actually Rhaegar and and Lyanna's son mm-hmm. uh, Jon Snow is. Uh, but uh, but yeah but they but he hasn't gotten far enough in the books to to, to actually to give it away yet. Yeah, he just pissed off a whole bunch of listeners and and Jaime as well. Oh well, we said spoilers. No, I'm, I'm we fine. said spoilers. <laughs> I'm fine right here. <laughs> Again, in the show, in the show, it's kind of a minor plot point. Right. That's true. In, That's true. In the books, it was a much bigger deal. But it's huge in, in retrospect in terms of the second last scene of the, of the TV show, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sort of. Except they set the precedent of. up in the very first scene of the entire show, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so again, in the books, there's a history of Targaryens and incest. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That they never went into in the show. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, interesting stuff. How does how does um, Daenerys end up marrying? What's this, the what's the barbarian guy's name? Um, you know the Cal Drogo. Drogo. Yeah. How does how does she end up marrying him in the very beginning of the story? Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. So in the so she was so she and her brother escaped from the rebellion. You know, twenty odd years ago, right? Okay. And fled over to uh, Essos, the other continent, mm-hmm. and were brought up by uh, one of the you know the the rich merchants there. Actually, I guess they they kind of wandered around and eventually hooked up with this guy as one of the rich merchants there. Uh, and the whole idea was that her brother was the one who was going to be oh right the king, right. the next king, and right. come back and and that. So so the brothers set it up with the merchant guy to broker a deal with the head of the Dothraki, who had a giant army that he would marry off his sister, and in return the Dothraki would support him right to go back over right. and, and take over. But yeah, you know, that didn't work out so well for him. Right, right. Huh. Read was the books. Drogo, they're, they're really good books. In the books, was Cal Drogo built up as much as he was in the show? Because that seeing him die yeah. was also rather shocking. Because he was yeah. built up as this incredible badass on the TV show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in the books too. Yeah, yeah. The first few seasons were actually quite faithful to the books. I'd say the first three seasons. I mean, not everything was exact, but it was pretty close. 
especially the first season. And, you know, and Stannis Baratheon was another one who kind of got a lot of disservice from the show. Uh, in the books, he is like, he is considered, you know, the military genius of all of Westeros. And, uh, you know, the books, well, in the books, he's still at the wall. He hasn't, well, he's, no, he's kind of, he's heading towards Winterfell, uh, but they haven't had that big battle yet. And the way he just kind of blundered into that battle and then just got killed off was really kind of unfair to the character of, of Stannis, the book character. Really? Yeah. Anyway, lots of spoilers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Read read the books. They're huge, but they're good. You know, they they go by fast. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, pretty sure I have them as audio books too. So mm. maybe on my commute, so I'll listen to them. There you go. The only downside with the books is that it's not done yet. <laughs> right, and yeah, right, right. Well, I mean, it's it's totally funny that that. Uh, he wrote the books thinking that he would make something that was completely unproducible as television or movies. Mm. Yeah. 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 And then here we are lapping it up. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.